Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Tower Heist, the new action movie starring Ben Stiller and Eddie Murphy and directed by Brett Ratner of Rush Hour fame. Here in the Slate studio with me is David Hagland. Hi, David. Hi, Dana. How should I introduce you? You're the editor of Browbeat, Slate's yes, culture blog. that's right. And uh, my new spoiler companion. I'm really happy you wanted to come to this movie yeah, because was... Tower Heist was a little bit of a hard sell. Well, you know, it's interesting to me because it was fun. And I was interested in part just because I knew it was inspired, you know, or that that the Bernie Madoff story was somehow a part of it, that it was picking up on the anger that people feel about what he did. And I think probably also a broader anger about the economy. So I thought, okay, well, this will be interesting if for no other reason to see how the movie handles that. Right. It's not the first thing you associate with a Brett Ratner action movie, that it's going to fold in some kind of you know social commentary right. about the recession. But so overall, you did have a positive reaction? I, I did. I enjoyed it. I mean, it was fun. The pacing was uh, pretty brisk. Pretty swift. Know, it's yeah. 104 minutes. I just checked the running time of the movie. And maybe that accounts for the fact that even though we both agree that it was full of plot holes and in some ways was kind of absurd, we both enjoyed ourselves. It was over with quickly. It wasn't a bloated blockbuster. Right. I suspect that some of those plot holes <laughs> emerged when they cut things. I mean, who knows? But it just seemed like they decided to make the movie kind of short and punchy rather than tie everything up. Um, and that was probably smart. I mean, I think the movie, it didn't drag at all, even though... Yeah, when you walk out, you think, wait a second, how did that happen? And whatever happened to that guy? Well, let's get into some of that stuff, because I don't think we really realized until we were walking out exactly how many things didn't make any sense and were kind of dissatisfying conclusions. Um, So as you say, there's a little bit of a a Madoff angle. Um, In fact, it's in some ways, it's a kind of a Romana clef about Madoff with with Alan Alda as the Madoff-like character, who's a financial wizard who's been running a Ponzi scheme secretly for, you know, we get the impression at least a couple of decades, right? Yeah. And he lives in the penthouse of, it's actually played by the Trump Tower, this right. building, um, but they just call it the Tower. And uh, and it's a very, very high-end, obviously, doorman building on Central Park. And Ben Stiller, who's the main character, actually not Alan Alda, plays the, I guess you call him the general manager of the I building? I think that's what they call them, yeah. The guy who knows how everything runs. And the first 15 minutes or so of the movie, which are quite enjoyable, are all just Ben Stiller making his way through the labyrinth of this tower, going through the laundry room, the kitchen, you know, the back of the concierge's office, and issuing orders and kind of giving us a sense of how the whole thing runs and who the staff is that keeps it all running. And as we were saying coming out, I, I really wish that some of the details you learned in that segment had come more into play in the right. final heist segments. I thought that was some of the most interesting stuff. Yeah, in fact, I think that... Um they dropped the ball a little bit in not extending the kind of intricacies of that opening, those opening 15 minutes or so into the rest of the movie, um, because that was so fun. And it had this I've, – uh, I've, I've never seen Grand Hotel, but I, I, there's something that's very appropriate to the, the, the medium of these sort of um, quick cuts to various uh, characters in the hotel. And you see the way that Ben Stiller is managing everything sort of so smoothly and perfectly and moving from one thing to another. Um, and – Again, the way that he's sort of um, adapting his his personality and his dignity to the uh, the personalities of these sort of wealthy people that he works for, I thought again that added something to those early scenes. Was that the movie seemed very conscious of his role as a as a servant, essentially? As right. Well, the movie spends a, a pretty long time at the beginning setting up exactly what his class relationship and working relationship is to all these hyper rich people who are you know the tenants in the building or right. the owners of apartments in the building, and you know then his underlings and how he's sort of aspirational. And Alan Alda at one point vaguely offers him maybe the managership of a hotel chain that he owns, and so right. you get the impression he's 
he's somewhat, you know, toadying, but also a person with his own dignity and his own pride in his job. And I thought all of that got a little bit thrown away in his character arc, because what yeah. happens essentially is that when the Madoff scheme gets uncovered and Alan Alda gets taken away, right, and um, and, and accused of, of stealing billions from many people, including the entire retirement fund of the building that he's invested for them. Ben Stiller goes ballistic way too early, I right, found. I mean, right. it's it's in the first, I don't know, one-fifth of the movie or something that he makes this complete turnaround from being this very high-end, you know, basically almost valet-type servant to the people in his building to going completely crazy and smashing out the windows of this red Ferrari. And so there's this big showy scene that becomes the huge turning point of the plot where Ben Stiller takes a golf club and bashes in the windows of this car right in front of Alan Alda, right? right. And that could have been a really cathartic and funny scene as it was played, right? With, right. with his, um, we'll get to who, who's standing around him in a minute, but, yeah. but all of his cohorts who are eventually going to pull off the heist with him are standing around cheering him on as he crashes the windows of this car. But it's too early for his character to have made that complete turnaround. And so, to me, we didn't really get to see him experience more and more frustration come to a boil and then have his catharsis. Right. Well, it, it seems like an obvious nod to Ferris Bueller and the scene where... Smashing um, in a red yeah, sports car. Yeah, smashing the red sports car. But that happens in the, almost at the end of exactly. Ferris Bueller. Exactly. And Ferris Bueller builds and builds and builds, and it's finally uh, Cameron, right, who who destroys it in the end. And by then, he's just sort of boiling with anger about his rich dad. And they, there just wasn't time for that. In this movie, Ben Stiller's anger is really keyed to his anger about what happened to his staff, which, you know, and maybe this is time to get into who those people are. Yeah, yeah, let's um, get into the staff, because yeah. this movie is really, it's more than a buddy movie. It's an ensemble kind of comedy, Definitely. and I think the ensemble is what makes it, to the extent it does work, we were saying there's mild laughs. It's not like right. you're rolling on the floor, but these guys who, who pull off the heist and one woman do create some mild laughs. So it's Matthew Broderick. Who's a, who lives in the hotel. And actually, he's an interesting character in general because he is a, a wealthy, um, you know, formerly wealthy man who worked in finance and has lost it all. And it was interesting that they made him such a sympathetic character. In fact, early on, you learn that he's been evicted and he hasn't left. And Ben Stiller has to go up and basically force him to leave. But he, you know, caves and realizes he can't put this guy out on the street. And it's interesting to, it was interesting to me anyway, that you really feel for this guy, you know, that he's not a villain, even though he's another sort of Wall Street banker of some kind. Um, but actually, you kind of sympathize with his, his plot as well. And Matthew Broderick does that very well. It's kind of this schlubby, formerly well-to-do, down-on-his-luck sort of guy. Good casting for Matthew Broderick, because oh, yeah. he always seems like an aged teenager, right? The fact right. that he's aged, just, it never ceases to be shocking. Right. And so who else is in his crew? Michael Pena, right? Yes, who's the newly yeah. hired elevator guy, who's, who's basically your sort of... And Michael Pena plays this character a lot, the sort of the guy who thinks that he's a mastermind criminal but is actually so dumb he can right. barely push the elevator buttons. Yeah, he does that well. And uh, Casey Affleck, who is Ben Stiller's brother-in-law, and... He was a concierge before, yes, right? yeah. And, uh, and who's having a, he and his wife are having a baby. She's almost due... It's clear that he's not very good at his job and that Ben Stiller is always covering for him um, in part because he knows he needs, he needs the money. He needs the health insurance, which they refer to explicitly. Um, there's also uh, Gabare Sidibe as the uh, Jamaican maid in a fairly broad um, comic performance. And then Stephen Henderson. Who we know from Law and Order. Yeah, who plays Lester as the doorman who's sort of kind of a Santa-like figure, kind of this big, um, jolly man who makes jokes with the kids and everybody loves him. Is there anyone else in the... I think that's the main, that's the main clan. Yeah. So, so after they've discovered that Alan Alda's been taken away and that he's squandered the entire retirement fund of the building, 
that's when they smashed the Ferrari windows right. and Ben Stiller and all of his cohorts are subsequently fired and banished from the hotel by Judd Hirsch in a small right. part as, yeah. I guess, the owner of the building. I don't know. He's the boss of the bosses. I don't know what yeah, he is. Yeah, it's not entirely clear to me. So Judd Hirsch fires them all. And that's when Ben Stiller conceives his plan that he's going to. How does he find out that there's a safe in, in Alan Alda's apartment with all of his money in it? I think Leone, uh, who's oh, right, the FBI great agent. Member of the cast. She's terrific as the FBI agent who is, it seems like, leading the case against Alan Alda's, you know, Bernie Madoff type character. And uh, she and Ben Stiller get together at a bar. I don't know if it was in Queens. We learn they're both from Queens. I love that scene where they get drunk at a bar yeah. together. Because for one thing, it's Ben Stiller and Taylor Leone of Flirting with Disaster, right. one of the best romantic comedies, I think, in the last 20 years. And it occurred to me later uh, that Alan Alda is also in that movie. Oh, right? yeah, so you're right. a little mini Flirting with Disaster reunion. I mean, and this she's... is, don't get me wrong, this is no Flirting with Disaster, right. no, but that scene gives them a chance to, at that moment, they're basically just getting drunk together, and it's a very silly scene, and yeah. they're not really having to advance the plot that much. Right. Although I guess that is when she transmits the piece of information that there's a safe somewhere. There's there's a hidden fund somewhere in Alan Alda's life, and we don't know where it is. Ben Stiller's the one who figures out that it must be in this standing wall in his apartment that was never demolished. Right, and in fact, she gives him the idea to try to, to, try to rob Alan Alda. Um, the meeting has been uh, arranged by Ben Stiller, it seems, because he wants to turn over whatever information he has on Alan Alda. And he thinks that because he served him so closely for so many years that he has all of these juicy details. And he turns them over to her and she looks at it and says, you know, we, we know all this. So there's a sort of moment there, I think, where he feels somewhat embarrassed. And then she says, let's get drunk. And then she reveals that, oh, you know, he must have money hidden somewhere. And then she says, we may not find it, you know, if only... Somebody stormed the castle, or I forget exactly how she puts it, but she basically. Oh, you mean do you think she's dropping a hint, saying you should try to find the money and rob it? I thought that was implied. Yeah, that in her sort of drunken state, she was. You know, she's she's clearly meant to um, kind of sympathize with with their plight and to just hate Alan Alda and want to see him get what's coming to him. And in that moment, you know, she seems suggests that they're not going to get all his money, and she wants somebody to. So that's how the plot is born, and that's how Eddie Murphy gets brought into the scene. Like, So from the beginning, we've right. been seeing Eddie Murphy as this guy who lives on Ben Stiller's street, who's essentially just a neighborhood tough, who we see yeah. yelling at his girlfriend. We see him at one point getting taken away for some small offense. He's clearly just a hood who lives on the street, right? right? But when Ben Stiller comes up with this plan that he and his you know, white, sheltered <laughs> colleagues who have never shoplifted anything are going to try to... Is it $20 million? $20 million. $20 million. They, They're yeah. going to try to heist $20 million from Alan Alda. He decides he's going to recruit Eddie Murphy to help right. them. And then in a, in a weird and <laughs> implausible twist, we learn that actually they grew up together, that Ben, that ben Stiller and, and, and Eddie Murphy both grew up in Queens. And attended and, the same daycare. And, yes, attended the same daycare. And there is, a you know, I think probably one of the funnier or at least um, more broadly comical scenes is between the two of them when Ben Stiller is trying to remind him of their childhood together and Eddie Murphy says oh right you're the kid who had the seizures and Ben Stiller says no 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 I, I was asthmatic I didn't have se-. and there's this kind of funny back and forth which is all in the trailer trailers give away so much now that if you've seen the trailer you've seen basically the funniest scene in this movie but that's actually emblematic of a problem with the movie but that it somehow gets away with which is that Eddie Murphy's just funny and charming and right. he can take right. pretty mediocre dialogue and make something out of it and that's basically what he's doing in that scene yeah and his 
reaction shots, I mean, another thing that's spoiled in the trailer is the scene between him and Gabrielle Sidibe when she's working on the safe and just the way he arches his eyebrow and gives her... As she drops her double entendres. Yeah. I mean, he does that as well or better than anybody. And so he kind of elevates the, you know, material that's fairly pedestrian. I think those people who miss the old Eddie Murphy from 48 Hours, Trading Places, would probably enjoy this because it is Eddie Murphy out of the fat suit and out of the kind of demeaning Disney roles he's been doing in recent years. Yeah. And it plays to his strengths. And it's sort of what Brett Ratner has been trying to do, I think, with Chris Tucker in the past. He now has like the He's got the, the real, real thing. Deal, yeah. Although then, as you said before, he's just dropped at the end that we never learned. Yeah, I want to get, okay, let's get to, let's take a break for our sponsor and then let's get back to all the things that don't work and the weird character arcs that get cut off and what happens to everybody in the second half. So, this week's spoiler specials are brought to you by PBS Indies, making some of the best documentaries on PBS available for download on iTunes. Search PBS Indies in the iTunes store, and you can find a wide trove of new documentaries nicely curated by PBS. Many of them are things that recently played on a POV or Frontline or Independent Lens. Uh, I searched through today to find some things that seemed interesting to recommend to you, and I found something that I'm definitely going to watch in the next week or so. It's this documentary called Wham Bam Islam. Have you heard about this, no. David? Uh-uh. I think it aired on Independent Lens or something earlier in the month and I remember reading the Times review and thinking that sounds amazing but it's exactly the kind of thing that always sinks into obscurity right. before you can grab hold of it but now it's actually there for sale or for rent on iTunes and what it is it's a documentary about I believe a Kuwaiti psychologist maybe a child psychologist who decided to start this new comic book about Islam that's essentially a secular comic book he's basically trying to create you know some sort of role models for Islamic kids and teenagers that aren't suicide bombers and, you know, extreme religious figures. And so he's somehow personifying the 99 virtues of Allah. You're not allowed, of course, to personify Allah himself, but he took 99 features of Allah that I guess appear in the Quran and personified them as these characters, and they're sort of like super heroic characters. Obviously, this became a big controversial thing in the Muslim world, and so it's about the debate about this comic book, and it sounds really, really interesting. Wham Bam Islam, directed by Isaac Solaratov, and that's one of the many great indies available on PBS Indies in iTunes. So back to Tower Heist. So let's talk about in the second half when stuff really hits the fan and yeah. we get the uh, the big Macy's parade scene. There's kind of a big set piece, which has more promise than it actually delivers on. But it right. is a really cool idea that they decide to pull off this big heist during the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which is passing right by the building. Right. Yeah. Just to sort of get into this, the spoilage, um, they you know break into his apartment by, in some mysterious way, changing Alan Alda's court date so that he will go to court on Thanksgiving. So he'll be out of the apartment and um, they'll break in and find this safe. Um, in the we court- never see them forge any document. No, or- we and That was the kind of thing that because the movie moves by kind of swiftly and you're chuckling away at Eddie right. Murphy's goofiness, you don't realize that one of the pivotal plot points makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of thought, oh, at some point we'll learn. Um, but while they're... Uh, executing this plan to to rob this the safe that they've decided is hidden in the wall, Eddie Murphy uh, goes rogue. Yeah, goes rogue, and they realize, wait, he's going to try to get this money himself. You know, it sort of foils every, their uh, initial plan, and they have to improvise. Um, they do finally get into his apartment, find the safe, and it's empty. That's when they realize that uh, the car that uh, Ben Stiller previously dented a few times with a golf club is actually made of gold and that's uh, 
you know, his his fallback. That's Alan Alda's fallback. What he has all his money in is in this. Is in I this sort car. of love the literalization of that. I mean, just I don't I don't know how deep Brett Ratner meant to get with right. making the car this chunk of solid gold, but it just sort of seemed like at the end of this period, these few years in which money has been disappearing as we know it, right? It's turning into pure numbers that then disappear before our eyes. The idea of having this very solid, vulgar thing, right? right a red right. Ferrari that's secretly made of solid gold underneath the paint. I mean, there just there couldn't be a more literal and vulgar symbol of extreme wealth. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they then have a lot of fun trying to get this car out of the penthouse apartment. And it's this elaborate um, scheme. They hook it up to a... Like a winch kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, that's on the top of the building. And they take the glass pane out from his apartment and pull it out of the uh, the building. And then it's hanging there. And I actually, I really appreciated that scene because I was sort of dreading, oh, God, there's going to be a bunch of loud crashing chase sequences at the end. Right. And there is one annoying chase sequence that yeah. we'll get to. But there was something kind of great and silent comedy-esque about the fact that th- this hinged on simple physics. How do right. you how do you get a Ferrari out of a top floor apartment building? Yeah, and it does lead to a sort of uh, you know fun reveal at the end that there's some twists in the in the plot. You think they're going to get the car to the to the street and then you know drive off or something, and it actually appears at one point as though they've loaded into a truck and they're taking off, uh, but that's not what happens, and you don't actually learn what happened to the car itself until the very end of the movie. Should we reveal what happens to the car? Yeah, sure. So at the very end, you see the group reconstituted at the tower. They go up to the penthouse where um, on the roof, Alan Alda had this horribly gauche swimming pool that had a $100 bill painted in some way on the bottom of the pool. And it's and co- the very first image of the movie, which you actually missed because you were still oh, right. coming back <laughs> from the bathroom, was Alan Alda doing laps in the, in the $100 oh, really? bill, the, Benjamin pool. Yeah. yeah. Well, they uh, it's covered and... You know, the cover is pulled back and, you know, all of these uh, these former tower staffers are standing there, big smiles on their faces. And as the cover pulls back, you see that the, they actually pulled the car up on the top of the building and put it in the pool. Right. It's so it's fully submerged in the pool. And it is kind of an awesome image. And so then in another weirdly literal symbol of wealth, they just dismantle the car and send big hunks of gold to all the people who lost their retirement accounts. And one of the last scenes is people opening these boxes and pulling out like a gold steering wheel <laughs> right. or a gold carburetor from their box. Right. And sort of crying with joy. And um. but so, so, so speaking of the end, so let's talk about all the stuff that I think is kind of poorly wrapped up at the end. Like this movie has a big problem with arcs in general. I already said that Ben Stiller's arc peaked too early. And then Eddie Murphy's arc just sort of trails away at the end. They just drop it. It's weird. You know, when he first um, sort of stabs them in the back while they're trying to make this... Uh, you know this heist. It struck me as as unnecessary. Why throw in that little that little wrench to the plot? But on the other hand, well, he's a he's a crook. He's not one of the hotel staffers. He has no personal investment in what Alan Alda did. So it sort of made sense. But then on the other hand, you think, okay, well. How does that change his relationship with them going forward? Yeah, he has to have one more beat. Like, there really needed to be, I mean, even just screenwriting 101, there needs to be one more emotional beat between Ben Stiller and co. and Eddie Murphy, right? Because at first they didn't trust him. Then they sort of all became a team to pull this thing off together. Then he double-crossed them. Then the only reason that they get him back in on the scheme is because Precious, at one point, Gabourey Sidibe, who I'll always think of as Precious, I'm afraid, pulls a gun on him, right? So under duress, under force, Threat of force, he agrees to re-collaborate with the operation. But there's not really any moment where they all kind of decide, like, yeah, let's screw the rich guy over together. Or on the contrary, if we're if, they're, if right. the if the moral of the movie is going to be like, no, you know, the really poor guy is not on board because he had no retirement account to invest in the first place. That would have been interesting social commentary too. But that doesn't happen, right? And and it's probably important to mention that the the way they sort of get away with it is that uh, in the car they find this ledger. 
that uh, Alan in the Alda Ferrari. Hears. You mean in the Ferrari? They find um, a ledger that Alan Alda, where he kept. Um, you know, all of his financial... Right, dealings. it's like his I am a crook book. Yes, exactly. It's, I mean, they, no, again, no, you know, no uh, specific details are provided, but it's clear that this is what will do him in. Again, that's hilariously literal. I kind of love yeah. it that there's just like a little leather word book with the word ledger on it yes. that has handwriting in it that shows all the, all the rip-offs. Right, like that that's where he would keep all this information and not, you know, on a zip drive or something. But so Ben Stiller uh, turns that over to the cops or to the FBI, whoever it is, and says... Okay, I will give you this if you let us go. And so they say, all right, we'll let everybody else go, but not you. You have to serve a couple of years. Now, what's, again, not mentioned, I mean, Eddie Murphy, who had this long criminal record, was he let go as well? That seems sort of... Unlikely, we just not. It's actually really bizarre when you think of it, and we didn't come up with this again because it all sort of like snapped along, and then it was over, and it had you know whatever exciting music, and we walked out snapping our fingers, and then we're saying, wait a second, Eddie Murphy literally doesn't ever appear after they're taken away, right? Yeah, they just. And there's even a montage like how everybody ended up, where you see the people opening their boxes of gold, you see Casey Affleck and his wife with their new baby, you see everybody sort of everybody going on with their lives in some happy way, and you don't see Eddie Murphy happy or unhappy in any guise, right? I did want to mention, too, I think with um, the Lester character, the doorman played by Stephen Henderson, he's the one character who I think they don't uh, give any kind of real plausible psychological well, depth he's a sacrificial to. lamb of a character, right? Yeah, I mean, he exists so, so that ways. there's some absolutely sympathetic person. He's not right. in on the plot. Although then later, when it finally comes down to it, he does collaborate with the plotters. And there's never a moment – this is not – good for Lester's character arc, there's never a moment where he says, okay, fine, I'll help you guys. It doesn't actually seem in Lester's character to do that because he is genuinely devoted to the building. You know, he's, of course, horrified that his his retirement fund has been squandered. He also gave all of his personal money to invest. And there's a scene where he tries to commit suicide. Very cliched scene. It's essentially shot for shot the exact same as Frank Langella committing suicide in Wall Street, too. I don't know if you you saw Wall Street, Street too. too, But yeah, there's, there's a moment where somebody, because they lost all their money in the crash, you know, steps off the subway platform. And I swear it's shot for shot, the wow. feet, you know, and everything. Anyway, but Lester doesn't die. He's he's pulled off the tracks and he survives and uh, and he ends up helping them out. But yeah, I felt like his character, like you said, was just a, a sweetheart Santa Claus who was sort of created as the opposite of a straw man, you know, like right. a, a puffy marshmallow man. You know? Right, who then they seem comfortable manipulating in various ways to advance the plot. So attempting to kill himself. Then later he drives the truck that looks like the getaway car in the heist, but is actually a diversion. And he... Oh, and this is the car chasing yes. you're talking about, which I found very disappointing. So can you describe the car chasing? Well, so he he breaks through because Taya Leone, they're now on to what's going on. They've come back from the courthouse where Alan Alda was, you know, (laughs) misdirected. And they realize, oh, someone is robbing you. And so they start to shut down the hotel. Lester has this truck that he breaks through a gate and drives right into the parade. And, and basically he's driving against the grain, like straight into yes, marching, marching bands band. and, and cheerleaders, baton twirlers. And he's got this sort of maniacal look on his face like he thinks this is all very And Teo, Teo Leone's following him. So they're sort of in car chase movie mode. And all I could think of was like, you guys are plowing into pedestrians. Right. And, it, you know, if I you, mean, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that no one's hurt in that right. scene, but it still makes them look it's just reckless endangerment. So it really makes you lose sympathy for both characters. Yeah. And he just seems sort of weirdly out of character insofar as he was this very sympathetic kind of jolly man. Now he's a complete madman. I think that was a scene where, I mean, essentially just Brett Ratner's moral compass, which is probably not the most refined of instruments, kind of failed him. He didn't actually think through, like, how is this going to play on screen? He just thought, oh, well, that's a great action idea, which it could have been if there had been a way of them driving through the parade 
unintentionally, you know, right. or into some part of the parade that involved cars or something like that when it wasn't just essentially mowing people down. Right. Well, and, and actually Brett, Brett Ratner's Moral Compass is sort of one other thing I wanted to touch on because part of what makes this movie fun, honestly, and satisfying is that it it's angry. It's angry about the Bernie Madoff figure. In some sense, it seems angry in a, in a broader way at other people like him who took, you know, uh, everyone's pension money and, you know, threw it away. Yeah, no, it has a populist anger that even at some of its more subtle moments that are then pretty quickly abandoned, but it's even directed sometimes at the middle manager types. Yes, like as right. when Gabri Sidibe says to, to Ben Stiller, you know, I didn't ask anybody to triple my portfolio. portfolio. Yeah. Right. Because he's sort of saying, well, I invested all your money to try to triple your portfolio. She's basically just saying, I mean, as any working person would, look, all I want is my own retirement fund. Right. And the crowd that we saw it with seemed pretty into it. And they actually, a lot of people applauded at the end. And I wondered to what extent it was a kind of catharsis. At- yeah, I think even if it's inexpertly harnessing that populist anger, that it will be, I think this will be at least a moderate hit, right? Because, I mean, I it's crowd-pleasing so. and it has this faintly pulled-from-the-headlines element. And there's there definitely are those moments of catharsis, especially if you're willing to suspend right. logic and character development in order to have those moments of catharsis. Right. And the performances are good. I love Tay Leone. Uh, I really like Casey Affleck. Eddie Murphy's fun. Al Nado's great at it. I mean, just in general, the cast really, you know, comes through, I think. Yeah. They were all on the same page about what they were doing, and that made it seem like a fun endeavor, even if, you know, not every detail was there. Right. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming in to discuss Tower Heist with me, David. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Please come see another movie with me soon. Absolutely. Our producer is Chris Wade. Our editor is Melanie McAfee. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.